3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning everyone and welcome to 3CR Monday Breakfast. The time is 7am and it is Monday the 22nd of November 2021. You are joined by Fung this morning as Jacob is on leave but they will be back next Monday. We're going to start this morning's show by uh, listening back to a segment from Do and Time. Leanne Carter from Vowels caught up with Marissa and they spoke about the need to raise the age. The Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service and the Human Rights Law Centre are calling a proposal made at a meeting of attorneys general to develop a plan to raise the age of criminal responsibility to 12 years old an absolute missed opportunity to look after children. Both medical evidence and international standards put 14 years as the minimum age a child should be held criminally responsible. So to talk about the proposal, um, and I've actually quoted from a media release put out by the Human Rights Law Centre, I'm going to be speaking with Leanne Carter, who we've had on the show a few times now. She's the statewide community justice programs leader at um, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. And I want to speak to her about what she feels is happening and discuss um, these very important issues. Hello, Leanne. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. How are you going? Oh, it's lovely to have you. Leanne, just as a protocol, can you just um, say what land you're from? Wurundjeri uh, and Noongar, and I'm standing on the Kulin Nations of Wurundjeri people today. Wonderful. Leanne, talk to me. What's what's been going on with this uh, proposal about criminal responsibility? Isn't this devastating? It is. Look, uh, the battle for raising age of criminal responsibility has been going on for a few years now. And I think what's really frustrating is this recent decision. It's not actually a decision to raise the age to 12. What it is, is it's simply a statement that's been made right. that they're talking about developing a proposal. Now... When you put it in perspective, a few years ago, the well, the attorney generals have been sitting on a proposal that they actually sourced, and from their own working group, after they've been consulted wildly, you know, wildly with the public and on the question of raising the age, they've refused to release the report. They've refused to release the public submissions. So what they're simply saying is that even though all the recommendations have said that the very minimum is 14, they're now discussing about making, you know, talking, talking, and that's simply a kicking your can down the street, talking about developing a pro- proposal to make the age of 12, which is far below the 14. We're talking about 12-year-olds, we're talking about kids that are still packing their lunches and going to primary school. Absolutely, absolutely. And so this is Victoria we're talking about, right? 
That's correct, but they're looking at setting it as a 12. So, as we know, the ACT have taken the, you know, the bull by the horn, so to speak, and what they've done is they've gone, nah, um, you know, 14, that's it. That's what the medical evidence said. That's what over 100, you know, different groups and community groups and medical experts have said, and that's what they're going with. So the proposal is that they're looking at, you know, this very sort of national 12. But young in absolutely, absolutely. And you know, if we've learned anything, we know that prisons don't rehabilitate. And, you know, the studies have shown that, you know, incarceration is no more effective than, you know, a community based order. And unfortunately, as I said, we are talking about primary school age children that, you know, are still developing, their brains are still developing, they're still, you know, going through all the very childlike behaviours. And it's, it's extremely disappointing and, you know, it's just really paying lip service to something that's so significant in, you know, in every young person's life. Isn't Canberra doing 14 years? They are. Yep. Yep. The ACT have decided that they're listening, they are listening to the medical evidence, um, you know, and they are going to go with 14. They are not going to go with 12. They're not going to go with anything less. They're going with 14. And when we're talking about, you know, well, some people say, well, why 14, not, you know, 12? And we know that prisons are, as I said, they're very traumatic places. And when we're talking about these particular kids that are going in, we're talking about kids that have already got a lot of trauma. Kids have, you know, more than likely been removed from their homes, been out of home care, you know, experienced family violence, experienced trauma, experienced abuse. And, you know, we're, we're talking about the absolute youngest of children that should never be subjected to the criminal justice system. And as I said, 12-year-olds, they're still, they're still in primary school and they're developing mentally, physically, emotionally, and it's, it's just super crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And, you know, when, when we think about these very young children as well, they're going to be subjected to strip searches, to isolation, and it makes them much more vulnerable to harm because their brains are still developing and the criminal justice system is more than likely to cause much more lifetime developmental trauma. How on earth can you celebrate the closing the gap agreement and the establishment in Victoria, as you say, in the media release, of the first Australian Truth and Justice Commission while simultaneously filling prisons with Aboriginal children? You can't. You absolutely cannot. I mean, we listen to medical evidence around COVID and what's best, and here we have here we have so many doctors, so many medical, with experts advice saying that 12 is too young. 14 is the very minimum. You cannot celebrate closing the gap whilst you're still locking up kids. You cannot do it. It's, yeah, look, it's, it's, it's not possible. And what's even more disappointing is that it's not even being debated in Parliament yet, is it? It's only a proposal. It's all a proposal. And and that's the you know that's the really frustrating thing is that this proposal it's a fake proposal it's not real it is not real it is nothing you know but an announcement it's it is an attempt to say to the public you know we're serious we we want to address you know everyone's concerns about you know young people staying out of prison and you know but 
in all reality, it's just a discussion about making perhaps, you know, something that may not eventuate. And it's time to push back. It's time to push back. 12 years old is not good enough. It is not good enough for what we've been fighting for. And if you look at the statistics, right, if they decided to go, okay, let's release all kids, right, up to ages between 10, as it currently is, right, and 12, as they're proposing, you'd still have 91.38% of kids in custody. That's how much of a difference this would make. 91% of those kids that you know, we're in custody, would still be in custody if they changed it to 12. It would not have any impact whatsoever. Absolutely. And and also, not to mention the fact also that, um, you know, young people present with multiple needs, disabilities, trauma, um, and more likely to, subject to child protection orders. Absolutely. Stolen generation. And- <laughs> That's it. And, you know, these kids, they're very, you know, these are very, very young kids. They're often, you know, disengaged with school. They're often out of home, you know, out of home. They've, um, you know, more than likely got a disability, you know, if not alcohol fetal syndrome or, you know, an intellectual or a cognitive impairment of some sort. These are the sort of kids that we are locking up. Correct. And, you know, Leanne... I don't know if we can connect this. I mean, I certainly see this as a very deep connection in that I was speaking to Dr. Maria O'Sullivan um, prior to your interview in regards to the pandemic bill in its current form, and we were talking a a little bit about concerns in regards to, you know, discrimination um, of certain communities, looking at protest not being an essential thing, could this pandemic bill impact um, Aboriginal children? This pandemic bill has the current bill. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Talk to me about that. Okay, we've already got we've already got a group of vulnerable kids, right? Now, when we're talking about um, you know, when we're talking about further isolating experiences, when we're talking about young children, for example, um, that are homeless, that are transient, that don't feel safe where they are, that get picked up, that get brought into custody, that are then placed in custody, which is further isolating, which isn't geared, the prison system is not geared to deal with complex needs or disabilities of children in particular that are often impacted by trauma. Mm. So the impact, as we've seen, kids being social, kids are social, right? Yeah. And we know they like to get out. They know, you know, they like to go to school. Some do, some don't. But they like to hang out with friends. And they're very very social creatures. Now, the, the impact that we've seen through the legal services, you know, in particular, is that these young people that are coming into custody they are struggling with mental health. They are struggling with disability. They are struggling right around. So the pandemic has exacerbated, you know, the lack of connection and the lack of being able to go out and see friends and, you know, have that connectedness. So anything that further impacts 
on these young people in particular is going to have a detrimental impact to them. Yeah, because I wonder, I mean, I'd really like to explore sometimes with this current bill whether, whether you know, it, it reaches out to prisons and, and juvenile, you know, young people in prison as well. How, how can we um, improve conditions in terms of it when there's a virus up, outbreak? We shouldn't be locking people up in the first place. No. Especially not, you know, not children. Not children. children. You know, prison should be the very last resort, the absolute last resort. And, you know, it's extremely rare that children, particularly under the age of 14, are arrested for serious crimes, which, you know, when, when I've had this discussion with people before, they've been like, well, what happens to serious crimes? It's very rare that young people in particular, you know, commit very, very serious crime. And as with children under 14, you know, they've got, as I said, like, they've got the additional vulnerabilities and trauma. And prison is much more harmful and it's not a helpful, you know, a helpful response to any unlawful behaviour. And it hasn't changed. Prison does not change behaviour. Diversion programs, justice reinvestment, putting resources into ACOs. And I think that's part of the problem is that, you know, when we're talking about, you know, um, talk determination and community-led, community have fantastic ideas. ACOs have fantastic ideas. Unfortunately, they're extremely under-resourced. And when people go and make decisions or decide that, you know, that they're going to perhaps make this proposal, this fake proposal, it, you know, it's only to the detriment of, the, you know, to our children. And all it's going to do is increase the rate of um, over-representation already. Absolutely. I mean, not only is there over-policing, but you, we've also got, you know, we, we live in a colonised land and, yep. you know, there, there are no programs for for young Aboriginal children. And on top of it, I mean, what can we do to, to help to make that proposal a reality? Mum, we can get behind raising the age, along with all the, you know, coalition and educating people around what it actually means. You know, because one of the things that have come out is people are actually really quite shocked when they learn that young people, you know, as young as, you know, 14 or whatever, can be locked up. But what we need to do is we need to, you know, put our resources and expand, you know, expand and strengthen the current existing programs that we do have, the ones that have been shown they work. But the biggest thing we need to do is we need to change our thinking. And when I had a discussion about, you know, raising, raising the age a few, um, you know, a few weeks ago to a panel, I was saying that we've just changed our public drunkenness laws, right? They're getting changed. Okay. Now, if we can change our way of thinking about how we view public drunkenness and not yeah. have a legal response, but have a medical response, then why can't we do the same with children? Ah, Why yes. can't we change our thinking about having a social and a health response and not a one-size-fits-all because every young person is very different, but we need to tailor those changes and that way of thinking to a real strength base because we are dealing with young kids traumatised, you know, often traumatised, often exposed then, you know, to really damaging custodial um, remand centres. As you say, putting, putting 
young people, putting anyone in custody while there's a pandemic, is just outrageous. It's extremely outrageous. And, you know, one of the things that I, I worry about quite extensively as a radio broadcaster and also as a human rights activist is our Aboriginal people being discriminated against um, because of the pandemic bill and the over-policing. We have over-policing of vulnerable communities enough as it is. And also in terms of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, um, you know, they, those recommendations that they, um, have not been upheld. And that's part of raising the age, isn't it, in a sense? Absolutely. And when you were saying about closing the gap before, remember they set the youth targets, and the youth targets were meant to be, I think it's by 2030. Mm-hmm. And there's a plan, you know, to half the number of kids, young people that are in custody. Now, if they raise the age, they'd halve that rate already. There yep. goes half your rate of closing the gap. You know, that's that's just one initiative. We can sit and sit and sit and talk here. Like, you know, when, when we're talking about the Royal Commission, and a lot of our mob know this, when we're talking about any commission, any paper, any submission, everyone feels tired. They feel so, so tired. One, because we've led the fight. Our community has continued to lead the fight on many, many issues that impact our community. But where we get tired is that we give everything to these submissions and to the commissions and we feel like they get shelved, yep. right? And only some parts of it come out. Now, when we're talking about making huge changes and changes that, you know, impact our next generation, we, we, can't, just, we can't just be talking about it anymore. We've got to make the changes. We're talking about the most vulnerable next generation of kids. You know, these kids are our next generation. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And we we don't want these kids ending up institutionalised. We don't want these kids as another you know way of a second generation, uh, second stolen generation. I mean, you know, there's so many of these kids that we deal with on a daily basis. And when we deal with these kids, these are out of home care kids. These are kids that have a significant amount of comorbid issues going on. And let's not take away that intersectionality. They are still our young Aboriginal child. But that goes without saying that no child, no child should be getting imprisoned and definitely not at the age of 12 and at the very minimum at the age of 14. You know, what, what, what's happening to Victoria? I mean, I'm, I'm almost frightened that this is probably going to sound really extreme, but... I don't want it to be like Joe Bjorki Peterson in Queensland. It's funny when I don't know, look, I don't like it. And when you look on social media and social media is just more stressful than the work I think some days because people say, Well, you know, um raising age isn't gonna do much or, you know, Aboriginal people already get a lot yeah. you know, all these handouts and it's sort of there's such there is a lot of racism, and whether people want to call it out or admit it or not, there is. And when we're talking about treatment and following processes and things like that, quite often they get missed with our mob. That's how we get deaths in custody, because processes and proper health care don't take place. And it would be absolutely shocking if we end up with a young person as a death in custody. Extremely shocking. 
Yep. Yep. And well, thank you. Know. That's great. Do you have any final comments that you're going to say something just now before we finish? <gasps> no, I mean, I suppose, you know, we would encourage everyone to actually look. Have a look at Raising the Edge. See what it's about. It's not just, you know, some people will say, oh, it's just about Aboriginal kids. No, it's not. It's about every child. It's about every child should be able to reach their full potential and to be able to live healthy and make good choices. We're talking about primary school kids. Have a look at the um, what the campaign's about and actually get behind it. Don't just go and sign your name on the campaign, but learn what it's about and support all the members, and that's over a hundred different, you know, coalition members that have put their name to this and are arguing that, you know, fourteen at the, at, you know, at the minimum. Absolutely, yeah, four, exactly, fourteen at the minimum. Yep. And if you want any more information, by all means, contact the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, and we'll be happy to provide you with any of the mailing lists or places that you can sign up and get on, you know, the campaign and other things that are going on. Leanne, thank you so much for coming onto the program and I'm sure we'll be having you back. I mean, I don't think um, genocide and dispossession are going to be going away anytime soon. No, and we're definitely in for the long haul. We're in for the long fight on this. Absolutely. Thanks so awesome. much. You have a good afternoon. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. That was Wiradjuri and Noongar woman Leanne Carter on Do and Time speaking with Marissa on why we need to raise the age. Well, looking ahead on today's 3CR Breakfast show, after uh, we play a track in the um, next few minutes, we're going to hear from James from In Your Face and Lushane Hurani who spoke about the Melbourne Queer Film Festival boycott and why it had has been called. After that, we're going to hear from Ella Simons, who joined Tuesday Breakfast last week. Uh, Ella is a 15-year-old climate school strike organiser, and they spoke to us about uh, attending a pre-COP event in Milan recently and also shared their reflections on COP26. And then just after eight, we're going to be listening to Jacob, who is usually here on Monday Breakfast, and they have brought us a report um, from Blockade Australia. But we'll be right back uh, after this. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's Community Sector. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio Tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black 
We have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tee that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post. And there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our T-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. You're listening to 3CR Radio 855 AM. This, this next track is by Kujumbara artist Bajra and it features a mayor and it's called Talk. You're speaking, but I never hear what you say. Can you replay? Let's talk about love Let's talk about life Talk about change Talk about us Talk about fights Talk about things nobody does Oh, let's talk about love I need the late night conversations to our
Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Monday Breakfast. My name is Fung and we just heard a song by Bajara featuring Maya and that track was called Talk. We're now going to replay a conversation with James and Lou Shane on why the Melbourne Queer Film Festival boycott has been called and this was played on In Your Face uh, just a couple of days ago. Activist Lejane Harani discusses the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. The Melbourne Queer Film Festival announced it will not remove Israeli-made film The Swimmer from its program or boycott films made in Israel in response to demands from a group of queer Palestinian activists. Earlier this week, prior to the announcement, I spoke with Lejane Harani from the activist group about the situation. I'll give a kind of overview of the context of what happened. So... Earlier this year, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival um, launched a program called MQFF Together, which was essentially a stand-in for the fact that the festival couldn't happen due to COVID earlier, um, or in 2020. Um, And in that program, there was not a single movie from Africa or from the Swana region more broadly, um, but they had programmed not only um, the recent film by the Israeli director Eitan Fox, but also a retrospective of all of their previous films, um, which have been criticised for pinkwashing. So um, a Palestinian reached out and asked them for more information and kind of brought to their attention the gravity of what they were doing with this careless programming. Um, And their response back was um, a bit undercooked. They... Uh, justified it with the fact that they wanted to uh, display a diverse range of LGBTQ narratives um, and also defined pinkwashing as a matter of personal opinion. Um, and then, so BDS Australia hosted two counter screenings to combat this, um, one in Brisbane and one in Melbourne. Um, Both were screening the documentary by Dean Spade called Pinkwashing Exposed, Seattle Fights Back. Um, And we invited someone, a representative from the Melbourne Queer Film Festival to attend and they didn't. Uh, And then a few weeks ago now, a couple weeks ago now, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival released their 2021 program. And the same thing happened again where there is a really severe underrepresentation of Swana narratives um, not just Palestinian, but Southwest Asia and North Africa broadly. Um, and they have included in the program a recent Israeli film called The Swimmer. Um, and so we've been organizing to, A, get the Melbourne Crew Film Festival to justify why they chose to do this again after bringing it to their attention earlier this year, um, and also to demand that they implement a cultural boycott policy to better uh, support Palestinian human rights from this point forward as an organisation. Has Melbourne Queer Film Festival responded to those requests? 
Yes. So they, um, after a couple days actually of our action, which that happened, we released the action on Monday in the afternoon last week. Uh, and it took them two days to reply to us saying that they were really disappointed to hear that um, they have been so careless with the Palestinian community and so many of us, and the fact that so many of us feel unsafe at their festival. And they also released a public statement that acknowledged the fact that the that the festival was unsafe and that they're trying their best to get things right. But having said that, the statement itself also used the same argument that um that was sent in the original email earlier this year about representing a broad um a broad scope of queer narratives and that Israeli pro- programming in Israeli film is one of them alongside um a I think it's an Afghani film yes um that was their justification, which was interesting that we were specifically calling out for Palestinian narratives and they were kind of, their response was very much like, oh, Palestinian, no, that's fine. We'll give you an Af- one from Afghanistan instead, which, which maybe conflates the idea that all of these narratives are just one in the same and, and that's quite literally not the case at all. I understand they are showing a film from Palestine. Uh, do you feel that that doesn't go far enough? Yes, so um, if you'd allow me to talk a little bit about um, about what it means to screen an Israeli film as opposed to just the representation of Palestinian films as well. Sure. Um, I can go a little bit further back and give some context. So um, in, and this is maybe a long-winded story, but in 2005, um, the Israel Foreign Ministry concluded three years of market research um, with the intention of rebranding the whole country. Um, and they, a couple years later, realized they had to organize and export cultural events um, to improve the brand of the country because previously um, there was a poll conducted called the East-West Global Nation Brand Perception Index. Um, and in that poll, Israel placed 192nd out of 200. So it was behind countries like North Korea and Cuba, which, as we know, have been smeared by the West for years. So that's how bad Israel's brand was just 10 years ago. Um, and they were really desperate to reach out to the broader West, not just the, not just Jewish populations in the West, um, to improve that brand of Israel. And a large part of that was, um, them organizing and exporting cultural events. So that's food and wine festivals promoting Israel-made products and um, Israeli film and art. Um, one example of that would be the Spotlight Tel Aviv program at the Toronto Film Festival. That was its inception. So there is quite a literal marketing strategy that was only imposed 10 years ago um, that specifically honed in on queer narratives in Israel uh, to sell this uh, brand, I suppose, of Israel being a queer haven, of Israel being the hub of LGBT narratives in the region, which is a fabrication. Um, And so the fact that Melbourne Queer Film Festival programmed this Israeli film 
to me is feeding into that uh, propaganda and that marketing strategy that is a fabrication. And if you'll allow me to take it one step further as well, the specific film that was programmed, The Swimmer, um, was actually funded by the Israel Film Fund. Um, and there uh, was a government contract imposed in 2008 um, where any Israeli academics and artists who want to accept government funding for their projects or their research um, need to need to sign this contract, two of the clauses of which declare, one, I will not undermine the policies of the state of Israel, and two, I will do my best to serve policies to to the state of Israel. So this film, The Swimmer, um, being funded by Israel Film Fund um, is inherently a piece of propaganda because it is dedicated to promoting the image of Israel, not only on the ground in occupied Palestine, but as an export more broadly. Do you call on the Melbourne Queer Film Festival to remove The Swimmer from its program this year? Yes, we do. And that was one of our original calls when we put the action out last week. And there was no willingness, I suppose, in our email correspondence as well to to cancel the film. Um, and so we're having a conversation with them on Thursday, but the first screening is the following day on Friday. So it definitely doesn't allow enough time logistically for that to happen, even if by the time we have the meeting, they've changed their minds. So I think there's also maybe um, a lack of acknowledging the critical time frame that we're dealing with right now. What's your response to Melbourne Queer Film Festival's co-president Molly Whelan resigning recently in solidarity with queer Palestinians? Yeah, so I actually had a conversation with Molly yesterday um, and and it was really emotional, I think, to hear it straight from them, to hear that um, there are people who are involved internally who are willing to stand with Palestine. Having said that, it was uh, also there was an element of sadness there knowing that, well, if they resigned, there must have been pushback internally. Um, and so it put into context for me the fact that this fight is going to be a lot bigger than I'd originally realized. Um, and I don't know who else within the organization is on side uh, and who's willing to stand with Palestinian human rights. But I'm hopeful that there are waves that are happening right now and that Molly is uh, very openly communicating where they're at. Did Molly say there'd been pushback in the organisation? Um, yeah, so uh, they actually shared their letter of resignation with me when they filled me in on it. And I might just actually see if I can find the document itself as opposed to paraphrasing. Sure. So the direct sentence that... Molly included in their letter of resignation is, the past week has been incredibly challenging and it has become apparent that my values and vision for the festival are no longer in line with those of the board. Um, and they go on later to talk about other uh, radical movements or human rights movements that the board have pushed back against in the past, um, specifically ones about disability and no cops at pride. So it seems like there's uh, there's a push now for MQFF to 
go back to the radical festival that they were when they were founded in the 90s, um, because it was a radical festival originally that did acknowledge the intersectionality of this fight for queer liberation. Uh, and I'm now aware of the fact that Palestine isn't the only thing that needs a little bit of an update in terms of the board's views right now at MQFF. So it sounds like you're strongly of the view that Melbourne Queer Film Festival has been pinkwashed. For those listeners who aren't familiar with the term, how would you define pinkwashing? Yeah, um, great question. So pinkwashing, to put it really simply, is the co-opting of uh, queer narratives in order to justify Israel's colonial agenda. Of course, the, um, the term has been used now in context outside of Israel, but it was coined to refer to that specifically. So um, it promotes an image of Israel as a queer, friendly uh, haven, essentially. And in the process of doing that, also uh, depicts Palestinians as inherently intolerant and backwards, um, which feeds into Islamophobic narratives that are also being... Uh, adopted by the West. And um, so Israel has now become this image of a queer-friendly nation, whereas in reality they are only queer-friendly to the settlers in Israel. So a very overt example of that would be the fact that, um, that the state of Israel blackmails queer Palestinians to become informants for the state, and if they don't comply with that, uh, then they threaten to out them to their communities, which is just a disgusting act that is not queer-friendly whatsoever. So I can really hear and understand why queer Palestinians in Melbourne are really being triggered by this issue and finding it really traumatic. Yeah, and even me talking to it right now, I can, I can tell, I can feel my voice starting to shake just because I do obviously take this so personally as a Palestinian, as a trans-Palestinian myself, knowing that um, my queer brothers, my queer siblings on the ground are, are having to face this every day. And it sounds like Melbourne Queer Film Festival really needs to kind of feel that as well. It sounds like, you know, it sounds like a face-to-face -face meeting really does need to happen. Yeah, and I am, I am quite hopeful for the meeting on Thursday, actually, just because I feel... Um, motivated by it being an interpersonal conversation. We're going to sit down. We're going to really kind of explore what doubts they might have and contextualize any gaps they might, they might be sitting with right now. Um, and I mean, I, 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 maybe this is a bit naive of me, but I feel like a lot of the, a lot of the reluctance or pushback from MQFF right now is just coming from a point of lack of education. So if I can just explain the wider picture to them and talk to them as a queer Palestinian myself, uh, I think I think we're on quite a good track at the moment. You mentioned African films. Uh, it sounds like Melbourne Queer Film Festival has taken some steps, including films from Cameroon and Namibia, but it sounds like that's not enough. Yeah, it's tricky too where historically the Melbourne Queer Film Festival, I've noticed this in a lot of their programming where 
even the narratives that are representative of minoritized identities, culturally minoritized identities, um, still feed into stereotypical narratives of either the model migrant uh, of this person of color needing to seek refuge in the Anglo West in order to survive as a queer person, or um, they enforce the stereotype of someone's homeland being inherently queer phobic. So um, I've noticed there are a couple, there's maybe one film on the program this year that doesn't do that. But uh, having said that, the opening night, um, the opening night screening, I think it's called Flea, uh, is uh, co-presented with the ASRC. And it's a migrant narrative about an Afghan queer man who ends up needing to move to Europe in order to live his queer life, which is a narrative that we as people of color are really trying to push back against because it just feeds into Islamophobia and also upholds this idea that we there's no place for us amongst our own people, which is inherently false as someone who has found queer community in Palestine and in Lebanon, where I'm where I'm also from. It really sounds like there does need to be more uh more films that really include emerging communities and really oppressed communities around the world, especially in the Middle East. Mm. Well, it's interesting that you say that because in the uh, original email that, or the correspondence that we had earlier this year around underrepresentation of our narratives, the response was that they weren't really working with many options. There weren't enough movies out there for them to represent the community um, justly, which again, is an inaccurate, uh, inaccurate response, given that in Palestine in particular, I mean, this is just one very obvious example. We do have a queer film festival called Aswat um, that happens that, that does depict Palestinian queer narratives. So it's not that they don't have the option there. It's that maybe they're not doing this active work to seek out generative narratives. And what I'd said earlier about the Melbourne Queer Film Festival having been founded as quite a radical festival, it was the first, it was the first festival in the Southern Hemisphere to use the word queer as an identifier as opposed to lesbian and gay because they'd acknowledged the fact that, well, no, we're dealing with the intersections now of what it means to come from these different queer identities. But, um, but so the fact that the, Melbourne Queer Film Festival has been radical in the past or was founded on the basis of of this radical ideology, they now have the opportunity to get there again um, and to and to do right by minoritized queer people who still today are facing oppression from imperialist structures in particular, like the State of Israel. And it really sounds like you're highlighting issues, not just for the festival, but also for the broader queer community in Melbourne to consider. Yeah, and it's, I mean, the timing feels quite ripe as well, where because of the unity intifada that happened earlier this year, where people were taking to the streets, for the first time in my life, I've I've felt a solidarity with the Melbourne scene more broadly, but then, of course, uh, queer subcultures as well, showing up for us. Uh, and... And I think there are all these different avenues that are that are feeding into my hopefulness around the cause where I know for a fact that we're being heard for the first time in my life. I'm actually seeing that we're being heard. 
uh, and and queer people in Melbourne in particular want to show up for us. And so something I want to highlight in terms of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival is that they're not just doing Palestinians a favor. They're not just taking care of our community. Them standing with Palestinian human rights would actually be in support of the broader queer community in this city, which, I mean, if that's not the intention of the festival, I don't know. I don't know what would be. Well, Jane Harani, thank you so much for talking to me on 3CR today. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. That was Lebanese-Palestinian writer Lujane Harani speaking to James on In Your Face about the Melbourne Queer Film Festival boycott. And just an update, uh, conversations with festival organisers didn't actually result in the film The Swimmer being pulled from the festival and the screening went ahead last Friday at the Jam Factory. There were protests outside calling for Melbourne Queer Film Festival to address the issues of pinkwashing and Zionist propaganda. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. We'll be back right after this. Across Australia and around the world, we've seen reactionary right-wing mobilisations around anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown and anti-public health demands. In response to this, the campaign against racism and fascism have launched the campaign Pro-Vax, Pro-Union, Anti-Fascist to combat the far right and to fight for public health, safety and social solidarity. Go to www.calf.melbourne to join the fight for the safety of workers in the community and against the far right. A 3CR supporter. Ella Simons is a 15-year-old climate school strike organiser who was recently in Milan prior to the COP26 summit. I spoke with Ella for Tuesday breakfast last week and she shared with us her reflections on pre-COP in Milan and talked us through what actions young people are demanding the Australian federal government take in order to act on climate change. In this interview, Ella begins by telling us how she got involved in climate activism. So in November 2018, the first ever global climate strike was held. I went to that strike with my friends, my mum, and I had never been to a protest before, and I guess that was just a massive point in my life, um, a journey into activism. And so from then, I became involved with School Strike for Climate and with AYCC, the Australian Climate Coalition, um, and also the federal election campaign to do with climate. Um, and I helped organise the September 20 strike, which is, you know, the major strike. There were almost 200,000 in Melbourne. Um, but then, obviously, I guess COVID threw a bit of a curveball into all that. We still tried to organise online. And we did have a strike earlier this year in that little gap between lockdowns. Mm. Um, but, yeah. That sounds incredible. Um, yeah, you, you sound like you really got into it. Very quickly, um, earlier this year you attended the Youth for Climate event in Milan. Could you tell us more about this experience and the paper that was drafted at the end of the conference? Yes, yeah, so 
In about February, I applied to the pre-COP event, Youth for Climate in Milan. Obviously, with not the expectation I would actually attend due to COVID. Um, but, like, we found, Mum and I found out we were going two days before the conference, which was pretty insane. Um, and there was a lot of, you know, it's pretty hard to go overseas, but we managed to get there. And then once we were there, the actual conference was across three days. And so there was like a main plenary, and then there were our working groups and breakout groups. So I kind of started off in the working group of climate conscious society and really looked at, you know, mobilisation and movement building. And then I moved more towards the non-state actors working group, which is where this, this discussion on the fossil fuel industry really came about. And I guess looking at the things that have gone on at COP26, those exact same discussions were being had at pre-COP. You know, there were even disagreements at pre-COP on abolishing the fossil fuel industry, on phasing out rather than phasing down. Um, so to see those exact same discussions be happening at COP is pretty wild. Yeah, it's it just goes to show I think a lot of uh, young people are already very much switched on and all these international leaders can, can learn a lot from you. Um, tell me a bit more about the atmosphere at Youth for Climate, uh, were there any speakers that you found particularly engaging and, and rousing? What was it like meeting uh, young climate activists from all around the world? Um, that was definitely the most incredible part, was actually getting to meet all these people. Um, on the opening plenary, both Vanessa Nakato from Uganda and Greta Thunberg from Sweden spoke. And their, you know, their speeches just really put, I guess, what lots of people are thinking. Greta saying, talking about blah, 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 you know, all our leaders, empty promises. It, it's the same from all our politicians right now. Um, so to hear them speak in front of all these people, the same thoughts I'm having is pretty special. But also just getting to hang out with the, you know, Fridays for Future and young activists afterwards. There was a strike on a Friday that we were in Milan there were 50,000 people striking the streets of Milan, which was just incredible to be in um, and incredible to be a part of that. Um, and, you know, obviously post-COVID, we haven't really been able to be in a protest with that many people. And so being in there was just incredible. And there were chants from all different languages, people from across the world from that had come to the pre-COP and were striking with us. So that was just an incredible experience. It sounds so powerful to be part of an international movement, definitely. Um, I know COP26 is now over, but what were your hopes for, for the conference um, before it, it started? Um, I really just wanted to see our government, being the Australian government, being called out um, and also to see the leaders, you know, putting in some pretty ambitious targets. And I guess it's very disappointing that... Um, they, in the end, I guess that major thing about phasing down fossil fuels rather than phasing out, phasing down is just not good enough. And I spent so much time at pre-COP working on these fossil fuel policies. And so it's just disappointing to see that that didn't really stick as well as we had hoped. I guess it's a start, but it's just not going to be good enough in this climate. You, you mentioned this just now, but I wanted to discuss... 
um, Australia's role in a bit more detail. So it is widely known that Australia is lagging in its commitments to climate action and it's very clear that the government is proactively against ambitiously reducing carbon emissions and divesting in coal and fossil fuels. Um, In a bit more detail, could you tell us what your take is on Australia's role in the fight to save the planet and what concrete action you would like to see from our federal government? Australia is such an important country in taking action on climate because we have so many resources and we do have the funding. Australia is one of the sunniest countries. You know, we have wind, we have sun. We could be a renewable energy superpower. Um, But instead, our government keeps moving towards fossil fuels to a dirty gas and energy. And we just need to see our government actually commit to stronger 2030 targets and then have a goal and have a plan to reach our 2050 targets. We're falling behind our needs to meet the Paris Agreement and we've got to meet that. You know, we've signed that and we've got to see our government held accountable to meeting the Paris Agreement. Yes. Um, obviously, a lot of pressure has been put on from our allies. You know, a lot of pressure was put on even for Scott Morrison to attend COP. We saw the Queen pressuring him to attend COP. And I think when people like that step in, it really shows that we're falling behind. Um, and, yeah, we're just so far behind. We don't have, like, m- several more pledges. You know, governments have put in stronger targets for 2030 and Australia just sticks to what they've got. And we really need to see them put in more ambitious targets. Yes, I can imagine that is, I mean, it is, we all know here at 3CR, it's very incredibly frustrating to see the lack of action from our federal government um, and especially, you know, our Pacific Island neighbours, they're at the forefront of all of this. They are the, they're currently being affected by, by climate change and it's only going to get worse for them. Um, what, I know, I know you're only one person and, and you can't really speak on behalf of your entire generation, but speaking to your friends and speaking to other young people at pre-COP, what is the current sentiment young, uh, among young people at the moment? I think young people are just so frustrated, you know. I talk to lots of people and maybe they've started to see a career in this, but I don't want to have a career in this. I don't want to have to be fighting for, you know, human, like for my rights and for everyone's rights my whole life. And I think there's just a lot of frustration and it definitely feels like we're running out of time. But when you attend events like pre-cop, you know, it fills me with hope because I see young people that care. But I just, every year counts, every COP counts, and we just need to really be pressuring our government. And the next federal Australian election is so important because if we elect the parties into power that are going to be taking action, then we'll hopefully actually see this action happen. Um, And I think it's just to know that, you know, everyone's voice is so powerful and young people have really found a way to make their voice heard. Young generations have never been as powerful and have, you know, been sharing their voices we are now. And so everyone needs to know how powerful their voice is and that they can make that difference. Definitely. There does seem to be a lot of momentum within the uh, climate action movement uh, that's driven by young people. Um, speaking of which, if there are any young people out there wanting to get involved in climate activism, what would you recommend as a first step? Um Sign up to School Strikes for Climate. There's a website online. Um, sign up to AYCC, the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. They run incredible workshops and trainings to actually build the skills to be taking action. If you're a First Nations or Indigenous young person, 
Seed Mob um, is just an incredible organisation who actually got some people over to COP26, which was amazing. Um, there are so many organisations out there, and I guess you just, yeah, AYCC, School Strike, the ACS, it's all organisations that have already, you know, been built up, um, and they're going to be training people up for the federal election. They're going to be training people up for the next campaign. Awesome. Well, we will pop all of those links in our show notes later this morning if there are any young people out there or parents who, who are having these discussions with their young people and, and want to get involved. Speaking of skills, um, I know you said you, you don't want to make a career out of this because it, it should just be something that is obvious that, of course, you know, governments are going to be working towards. But uh, by joining the climate movement, what skills have you acquired um, I have definitely teamwork. Um, working in a group of teenagers, I guess, specifically, you know, there are always disagreements, but it's incredible to see how teenagers have worked together to make stuff happen. You know, we might all have been the closest friends if we've met at school, but we can organise professionally. We can organise events for thousands and tens of thousands of people. Um you know, things I've never learned at school, like budgeting, how to put an event together. I've learned how important our unions are and how you can contact unions, how you can work with unions. Um, I've learned about all different organisations. You know, I've learned so much actual climate science and the statistics and the things we need. I mean, I've learned how to tell my story and how you can empower people and how to have meaningful conversations. And I guess just so many things that you probably wouldn't learn by the time you're in year nine at high school. Um, so I think just joining an organisation or a movement like that teaches you so many different things and gives you so many skills for the rest of your life and so many skills that you that are so important. Well, that's an incredible note to end on, Ella. I think you're right. Um, it sounds like you've just had the most amazing experience and, and you are doing, you and other young people in this country and around the world are doing such important work and, and really leading the way um, with, with climate justice here. So I just wanted to thank you for joining us on 3CR this morning. Hopefully you know, things will radically change and, and, you know, the next time maybe you come on 3CR, we'll be having more positive conversations about about climate and about our federal government. But for the time being, thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your morning to speak to us today. Thank you for having me. That was Ella Simons, who joined me on Tuesday breakfast last week. Very impressive young person. Uh, they spoke with me about their pre-COP uh, summit in Milan, as well as their thoughts and reflections on uh, Australia's lack of response or lack of action um, in the face of climate change at COP26. And, um, yeah, we're... Just coming up to, well, we're now past 8 o'clock. Um, I'm going to play another song, and this is uh, by a band called Purple Dye. Um, it's actually my friend's band, so shout out to Alex Keller, wherever you are. This is a fantastic new song. It's called Like Ecstasy. Um, I'm really into it, so I hope you enjoy.
Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast. It's nearly 8.10. And if you've just joined us, we just played the song Like Ecstasy by NAM-based band Purple Dye. With the Morrison government continuing to be a laggard on climate policy, activists are mobilising to demand the state to do better. Blockade Australia is a movement of non-violent direct action opposing the colonial and extractive systems of Australia. Last week, they launched a series of consecutive actions at the port of Newcastle, the world's largest coal port, to draw attention to the government's inaction in the face of a climate crisis. Jacob Gamble spoke with Rilke, James and Marco about it earlier this week. did a tree sit on a Wagabool and Warramai country where I was tied to the train line and blocked coal trains from going into the world's largest coal port. Two of us planned to um, board a a stopped coal train. I found myself uh, climbing, line climbing to a tree sit on the rail corridor and tied to a stopped coal train. I'm going to be sitting in a tripod that's uh, blocking coal trains. I'll be abseiling off a bridge which is bottlenecked to the world's largest coal port. Tell me a bit about Blockade Australia for for people who don't know um, who you are or what your aims are. Blockade Australia is a mobilisation. We're trying to organise... Yeah, lots of mobilizations. This has been the first mobilization kind of launching our Sydney event. Um, yeah, and we are kind of like trying to change the, um, culture of direct action to start centralizing our power and targeting significant parts of Australia's operation because, um, we realize that we can't have any effect on averting the climate crisis without actually changing the structure of Australia because Australia, you know, within its structure has no mechanism to change and to avert this crisis. So we, yeah, are focusing on the urgency of the climate crisis and the inadequacy of the system and um, that, yeah, we need to, like, join together and actually focus on things that are important to Australia rather than just things that are important to us. Yeah, and I guess as if you have had a look at the purpose statement, they have noticed there's like no demands and like we are very much organising with the acknowledgement that we are, yeah, facing a serious climate crisis 
and what we need to be doing at this period of time is trying to bring as many people together to take part in direct action and sustain it at like critical targets and that the action is really what we need at this point and so we believe that like through that there may be you know a more appropriate time for demands to emerge and but we are I guess um, very much grounded in the kinds of um, strategic sustained direct actions that um, you've been seeing up here in Newcastle, but also that we'll um, replicate on a bigger scale in Sydney next year. So, This is not a protest against coal mining specifically. This is a resistance to a system of exploitation. You know, Australia was designed from the very start to be a system of exploitation with the you know, invasion of Aboriginal land, you know, the, the enslaving of, of uh, prisoners, you know, sent from... In, you know, sent here for like the most minor crimes. You know, and 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 they've just come here and they're just digging up the um. You know, they're selling everything on this continent and then they dig up the continent itself and sell that. So so what we're Blockade Australia is really a um a movement against uh, Australia itself, not against um you know coal or the Liberal Party or a, a, any of the more um any of that kind of stuff. And I know that you have been doing some actions over the last 11 days across the port of Newcastle. Can you tell us a bit about those? Yeah, so over the past 11 days, there's been a huge amount of disruption on both the coal railway line and the port. And the railway line is a bottleneck into the port. So it's where all of the coal, nearly all of the coal from the Hunter comes in to the world's biggest coal port. So it's obviously like an extreme amount of coal. There's been about 25 people that have been arrested in in all different actions. Yeah, putting themselves on the line, you know, safely to to stop the coal trains. Yeah, and then people on Monday started going into the port. But effectively, we have kind of shut down operations you know, daily for the past 11 days. Yeah, and so, like, elaborating more on that, we've seen, yeah, we've predicted there's been more than 60 hours of disruption to the port. So through those 25 actions, we've been trying to also use this mobilisation to kind of exemplify what kind of direct action tools we, you know, um, you know have uh, available to us as just people with bodies and so yeah we've also been using this to really upskill people and in a lot of different skills so there's been you know different forms of direct action um, with a whole different yeah sets of accessibility and to try ensure that we can get a really um, have empowering and accessible form of sustained direct action what does sustainable direct action look like to you? I mean, we see that to be able to challenge the power, like it it needs to be prolonged and it needs to be sustained. You can't just, you know, we've seen, yeah, the school strikes have massive marches with hundreds of thousands of people. And and again, with like the anti-war in the past and yeah, just like that, that actually, 
that disruption needs to be sustained. It needs to be prolonged for it to actually be, be challenging the power. Otherwise, they can just wait till you all go home and everything just goes back to normal. But yeah, obviously also, yeah, sustainable and making sure like we are all able to keep doing it and be, you know, healthy and continue. Yeah. And elaborating on that further, really encouraging a, a system of um, actions, then debriefing and resting and planning yeah. and um, ensuring that each one of those components are, you know, valued just as much as the other. And so it's not, you know, and they're all roles in that highly valued. And yeah, that's been really important for this mobilization and um, is going to be into mobilizations into the future. Um, so you've been doing this for 11 days now. What message are you hoping to send to the government? And I know you mentioned before you weren't like anti-coal, anti-liberal party, but also to the fossil fuel industry, I suppose, on the issue of, of the climate crisis. To me, I don't think we're sending a message to the, the politicians. I don't, I don't think that's who we're talking to. We're talking to everybody else who's desperate for change and who's desperate to do something about the climate crisis but has no agency in the the political sphere right now and and to show them that, like, you can do something, this is what you can do, we can all do this together. But, yeah, that yeah, we're not asking them to do anything because they've been asked long enough and have done nothing. And so, in my mind, we're talking to everyone that you know the majority of the population who actually doesn't want to put up with this and doesn't want to see their future destroyed and doesn't want to see you know the decimation of all life on earth and like yeah we're talking to the people who can join us and will join us and will challenge this destruction hopefully the government's response that people have been seeing to our um to these sustained disruptions and sustained actions does encourage people to get involved and to understand how impactful we can be when we take these kinds of actions. And I guess, yeah, that's, you know, as Rika said, a big part of it um, is not so much responding to yet, at least, to government or asking anything, but more so asking the people to come and take this kind of action because we've seen so far that it's incredibly impactful and, you know, the state's scared. That's why they're, you know, they're big and (laughs) they are... This is definitely only a very small stepping stone in the start of this strategy, but um, because we reckon when similar things happen on a much on a much more sustained and period in critical points, we can really force a difference, a force change. I think that's really great. The idea of if everyone's doing this at the same time during a critical point in our history, um, perhaps we will see something new. So my, my next question is about the, the activists that have been arrested. So I know you've had, I think you said 20 people arrested before. What kind of penalties have they tried to impose and what's been like the general response to that? Yeah, so we've had 25 people arrested so far. And there's also been people who have been um, arrested for simply being suspected to have helped out with an action. So um, it's there's been total overreach police powers, um, not to be unexpected, but obviously um, outrageous. And, yeah, and the charges have just been getting uh, more intense and 
full on. Yeah, like people now everyone is being refused bail. They won't be allowed out of the watch house until they've seen a magistrate. Some people usually you'll get held for four hours and then if you sign bail, you'll be released. And they're actually giving people unsecured bail, which is common for like, well, it's very uncommon. And when it happens, it's usually a lot of money for like a murderer or something, someone in the high court, not someone in the magistrate's court. And, and sometimes just like, yeah, low sentences. So they've, yeah, got these unsecured bail. There's also been, yeah, really extreme charges that have 25-year jail sentences. We, Yeah, we don't think that they'll stick, but it is, you know, a tactic of the police to repress people by making them spend a lot of time in court cases and stuff. And also, I mean, it's a scare tactic. But, yeah, so some extreme charges and then a lot of repression with bail and forcing people, yeah, to stay in kind of police custody for longer than even their fine would kind of result in. To just give an example of some of the, char- like one of the most outrageous charges that have been thrown at people is um, the intent to kill or um, an intent to derail trains. So um, obviously these actions have not caused any harm to anyone and we practice, you know, non-violent direct action, but... Um, Yet again, yeah, the police continue to throw these outrageous trumped-up charges, which obviously is also trying to paint us as mm. um, dangerous and mm. when we know where the real danger is coming from. I know you mentioned you had a movement happening in Sydney coming up. Did you want to speak a bit about that and, and how our listeners could support the movement moving forwards? The purpose of, of Blockade Australia is to encourage people to kind of converge on like one place at, at, at a time and shut it down. So, yeah, we would be, you know, we are asking and encouraging people from, you know, Wurundjeri and Bunurong country to come up to uh, so-called Sydney uh, next year and really try and make an effort to, you know, to, to, to get themselves up there. So, yeah, we've got, we're going to be uh, shutting down Sydney for a week from June 27th to July 2nd. Yeah, and that hopefully that's going to be, like, really epic. So, yeah, obviously encourage people to try and, like, think about how they can get themselves up to that because, you know, I mean, if you've seen what, what's happened just recently, it's like uh, if we can get lots of people, I mean, <laughs> we, can re- we, can, we, can, we can really make it, you know, make a splash. Yeah, and so I guess more specifically with in the ways that people can be helping from, you know, their local towns and communities. We will be organising info nights and upskills and getting affinity groups prepared and ready to kind of convoy to Sydney next year and take action. Um, you can be jumping onto all of the socials to keep up to date with what's going on and particularly jump into the Telegram channel that is connected on the link tree and on the website and yeah, Facebook, and you'll find it up around the place. So um, that's a key communication platform that will be, like, conveying info, but there'll be a lot of info that will have to be conveyed phones free through info nights and catch-ups, so make sure to come to those. 
You're on 3CR and that was an interview with Blockade Australia. A powerful quote from Rilke about the government's inaction on climate. We're not asking them to do anything because they've been asked long enough and have done nothing. If you want to learn more about Blockade Australia and the planned blockade of Sydney in 2022, you can hop onto their website at www.blockadeaustralia.com or follow them on Facebook under the same name. Thanks to Jacob for that report. Um, before we go to a break and, and then wrap up the show, did want to play a song and keeping in theme with, with, um, grassroots movements to try and save, uh, the environment. Thought I would play this song. It's called Too Precious to Plunder by Twisted Folk and it features on an album from 1999 called Lock On, Songs to Save Australia's Forests. And Andy Parks, who was project coordinator um, in 1999, said that this CD was produced as part of my honours degree in contemporary music at Southern Cross University in Lismore. I was looking at the role that music had played in the environment movement of northern New South Wales from Tarania Creek protests in 1979 up to the present day. So here it is, Too Precious to Plunder by Twisted Folk. Who will save our old growth forests? Who will keep our rivers wide for all time and for all people? Too precious to plunder ancient trees and deep rainforest, sacred stones and creatures wild for all time and for all people too precious to Once again, that was Too Precious to Plunder by Twisted Folk, features on the 1999 album Lock On, Songs to Save Australia's Forests. Well, we've now come to the end of our show this morning. So just to recap, we started with um, a segment from Do In Time where Leanne Carter from Vals caught up with Marissa and they spoke about why we need to uh, raise the age of criminalisation in this country. 
After that, at around 7.30, we heard from Lou Jane Hurani, who joined James on In Your Face last week to speak about the Melbourne Film Festival boycott um, and the ongoing work that uh, queer Palestinians and allies are doing um, in the face of pinkwashing um, from Israel. Afterwards, we heard from Ella Simons, who joined me on Tuesday Breakfast last week to speak about uh, COP26 and to share her thoughts as a young person on uh, Australia's lack of action in the face of uh, a climate crisis. And lastly, we heard from Jacob, who spoke with um, a number of people from Blockade Australia about uh, their upcoming actions at the Port of Newcastle and also how you can get involved with the planned blockade of Sydney in 2022. Thank you so much for joining me on Monday Breakfast this morning. Up next, we've got Women on the Line, and make sure you tune into 3CR tomorrow morning for Tuesday Breakfast at 7 a.m. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.